What the heck is this weather? I'm in Central California and we were under flood evacuations for about a week because local officials were worried that the river near us would be breached as it did further up. But we live near where the river empties into the ocean and thanks to low tide and a widened mouth, that didn't end up being a problem. I know this because we didn't evacuate. But, 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 before you get mad at me, we did watch the river very closely, it was fine. But that was my personal drama with the floods. Hey y'all, it's Becky here from The Becca Sphere, where we talk about climate news and solutions. Anyways, let's get back into talking about the California rainfall events. We here have been pretty lucky because we didn't flood and our power never went out. Many people, even within the same county, can't say the same thing. And we were super surprised that the power didn't go out given the hurricane-forced winds that we've had and that PG&E has cut our power for much less. Tens of thousands of people lost power in the state with one of our friends in Santa Cruz Mountains being left without power for nine days straight. It seems like the Bay Area, Santa Cruz, and Southern California have been wrecked the most by these continuous successions of storms. San Francisco and Oakland beat their 16-day rain record, and many parts of the state have already received over half of their annual rainfall allotment. At least 18 people in the state have died. Biden put California under a state of emergency, and FEMA considers us a disaster zone now so that we can get more federal funding and support. While each of these storms are not unusual on their own, this back-to-back-to-back back it's very unusual. I actually couldn't tell you the last time that it rained this much. All this rain comes in the middle of a mega drought, meaning that the ground here is super dry and dead. Not ideal for taking up water, but perfect for mudslides, landslides, and flooding. Luckily, we are getting snow from these storms, which will help us fill up our reservoirs for the summer, but these storms won't help us with the lack of groundwater as much. We're still in a water crisis, is what I'm saying. Even with all of these storms, statewide reservoirs store storage is still only 82% compared to normal for this time of year. And while it's raining cats and dogs now, we could still fall short of our annual rainfall average if there's a drought for the rest of the year. So we'll have to see. Climate change might make this flip-flop from super dry and hot to drenched more often. And warmer air holds more moisture, which means more water to drop in places. This rush of atmospheric river draws comparisons to the mega flood in 1861 and 1862. In that event, rain events hit the state continuously for 43 to 45 days, leaving whole cities underwater. Compared to that, this was mild, but scientists expect it to happen again, which would likely result in more economic damage than the big earthquake California has been expecting my whole life. If you live in California, let me know how you have been doing with all this rain in the comment section below. Zimbabwe and Zambia wish that they had rain like this because the Kariba Lake, which is made via the world's largest man-made dam in the 1950s, has reached record lows due to the drought. On December 28th, it dropped below 1% capacity, according to the Zambezi River Authority. The lake's water comes from the Zambezi River, which flows right between the two countries. The hydroelectric dam provides power for millions of people, so energy companies are having to make some difficult decisions right now. Normally, each country is allotted a little over a thousand megawatts of electricity from the dam, but now they're only receiving less than 400 megawatts. That means no electricity for large portions of the day, which is causing the countries to take big economic hits. If this continues, it could also cause food 
food insecurity due to lack of refrigeration availability. The drought is also hurting the fishing and agriculture industries too. The rainy season from now until March in those countries, so we'll see if they receive any relief. Before we move on to the climate mitigation news, I want to mention the record-breaking heat wave Europe entered 2023 with. Temperatures were about 30 degrees Fahrenheit or 20 degrees Celsius hotter than usual on New Year's Day across the central and northwestern Europe. Dumbfounding scientists. Many took to Twitter to say they had never seen anything like it, calling it Europe's most severe heat wave in modern history. Bad news for the snowpacks, but ironically good news for the energy crisis, as many were able to switch off or turn down their heaters. But to further emphasize what we might be getting ourselves into this year, I've seen two micro videos from two of YouTube's climate scientists so far expressing concern for this year's temperatures. 2023 will be one of the hottest years that humans have ever recorded. If you thought 2022 was hot, oh boy, just wait till you see 2023. Because the planet is heating up, every single year since 1983 has, at the time, been in the top 10 hottest years ever recorded. So in some ways, predicting that 2023 will be one of the hottest years ever recorded is a bit like predicting that summer will be hotter than winter. I mean, that's just how the physics of the climate works. And this year, La Nina gives way to her hotter brother, El Nino. El Nino tends to amplify temperatures in Northern Europe and North America, increases droughts in Africa and Australia, and increases the amount of heavy rainfall in Latin America. So because of greenhouse gas emissions and the little boy oscillation, 2023 will likely be one of the hottest years we have ever recorded. So that's alarming. Zooming out for some global news now, a recent UN report sees the ozone layer completely healing in the next few decades thanks to international action through the Montreal Protocol. This is huge because the ozone layer keeps us from being hit by more of the sun's UV rays. The layer was being broken down by chemicals we use to have in everything, from hairspray to refrigerants. The largest holes are over the poles. After learning the news of these holes, world leaders met in Montreal, Canada in 1980 to agree to phase out these chemicals. 46 countries signed on to this agreement, making this arguably the best example of international cooperation in modern environmental history. So while this isn't really a climate story, though the ozone layer might also assist in climate stability, I'm talking about it because the ozone story is where a lot of climate activists get their daily dose of hopium from. And now we can see that this agreement is working. The UN projects that the hole over the Arctic will close in 2045, the hole over the Antarctic, which was the worst impacted space, will close by 2066, and any other hole in the layer will likely close by 2040. So that's amazing but not entirely guaranteed if we continue to play with the atmosphere. For example, geoengineering advocates are proposing injecting sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere to cool the planet, but this could have a detrimental impact on the ozone layer. So... We gotta be careful with what we're doing here. The UK branch of the Extinction Rebellion recently announced that it would switch its activism methods away from the disruptive protest style it's known for. Quote, as we ring in the new year, we make a controversial resolution to temporarily shift away from public disruption as a primary tactic. We recognize and celebrate the power of disruption to raise alarm and believe that constantly evolving tactics is a necessary approach. 
What's needed now most is to disrupt the abuse of power and imbalance to bring about a transition to a fair society that works together to end the fossil fuel era. Our politicians, addicted to greed and bloated on profits, won't do it without pressure. We must be radical in our response to the crisis and determined in our efforts to address the climate and ecological emergency, even if it means taking a different approach than before. In a time when speaking out and taking action are criminalized, building collective power, strengthening in number, and thriving through bridge building is a radical act. This decision came after a YouGov survey found that about a third of those surveyed had a negative impression of the Extinction Rebellion. The UK also recently cracked down on activism in general, enacting the Police Crime Sentencing and Court Act in 2022 that gives police more power to restrict demonstrations and introduce legal ramifications on locking down and interference with key national infrastructure, which can be both punishable by imprisonment. While XR UK will no longer be spray painting or gluing themselves to any sites anytime soon, it still plans to rally its 100,000 activists to surround the House of Parliament this Earth Day. Quote, XR is committed to including everyone in the work and leaving no one behind because everyone has a role to play. This year, we prioritize attendance over arrest, relationships over roadblocks as we stand together and become impossible to ignore. What do you think about this shift in protesting style? Which protesting style do you think is the most effective? And what is your opinion of the Extinction Rebellion? Let me know all of your thoughts in the comment section below. In other UK news, Friends of the Earth filed a legal claim against the UK government for approving the country's first mine in 40 years. The Whitehaven mine, which will be built in Cumbria, will produce coking coal for steel production. The climate campaign group said the government acted unlawfully when it approved this plan because it failed to account for the significant climate impacts. The coal company claims the project will provide 500 high-skilled jobs and potentially create 1,500 more in the supply chain. But climate activists say that those new jobs don't outweigh the emissions the plant will produce. It also goes against the UK's decarbonization goals of phasing out coal plants by 2024. The coal plant has divided Cumbria residents with half wanting the much needed jobs and half not wanting the environmental damage. I'll keep you posted on this case as I learn more. But if you're located in that area, please let me know your thoughts below. The UK isn't the only place where environmentalists were fighting Cole's comeback. German riot police recently cleared an abandoned town, Lutz Lutzverath, sorry if I mispronounced that, where hundreds of climate activists camped out for two and a half years. The town was emptied of its 900 residents five years ago after the energy company RWE purchased it to make way for an open pit coal mine expansion. This expansion would directly go against Germany's goal of reducing emissions down to net zero by 2050. So in response to this news, climate protesters began showing up in drones to occupy Lutzerath, reaching around 700 people. On January 10th, the German court issued an eviction notice to the town so the project can proceed. And the government says this coal expansion is necessary to get off Russian fossil fuels and that the plan is still to end lignite-based power generation by 2030. Activists say the expansion is not needed and they were hoping the expansion would get canceled after the administration change in December 2021. Nope. 
Riot police surrounded the town and started removing people, but the anti-coal activists barricaded themselves in town, erecting tree houses and chaining themselves to them. The first clash between police and activists was pretty dramatic, with the police attempting to drag out people while other activists directed fireworks, stones, and bottles in their direction. It seems like the relations between those two parties did eventually turn peaceful again, though. Both the police and protesters expected the eviction to last several days, if not several weeks, with famous activist Greta Thunberg saying that she would join the efforts this weekend. In the end, though, it only took a few days, so it looks like the coal mine expansion is going to end up happening. What do you think of this? Let me know, especially if you live in Germany. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, just backed off on plans to crack down on smog regulations in the Permian Basin. The basin is a fossil fuel hub located in the U.S. South. The EPA was close to labeling the area as violating federal air quality regulations for ground level ozone, a gas that produces smog. Smog exacerbates respiratory illnesses. Cracking down on smog would have brought about pollution curbs in the area and potentially reduced drilling, which would have benefited the global climate. But now that plan has been crossed out of the EPA's agenda, though it said in a statement that it might be brought back later. The Climate and Energy Program Director for Wild Earth Guardians was disappointed to see this change. Quote, the agency seems to be backing down from this critical initiative to safeguard clean air and public health in the Permian Basin. While the Biden administration talks a good talk on public health and environmental justice, the reality is they're bending over backwards to let the oil and gas industry trash air quality and communities. The president of the Texas Oil and Gas Association, meanwhile, was thrilled. Quote, the wide open spaces of West Texas and Eastern New Mexico are home to the oil and natural gas that fuel our economy and enhance modern life. Excessive government regulation is unnecessary and stifles affordable and reliable energy supplies. Where do you stand on this? In more positive EPA news, it recently reverted the definition for Waters of the U.S., or WOTUS, to what it was during the Bush Jr. presidency. And that's a good thing because what is considered under federal protection was really confused during the last few administrations. What is designated as a federal water body is immensely important for maintaining access to a healthy environment and safe drinking water. Granted, businesses would prefer for the federal powers to be heavily limited so that they can have more access to water to do whatever the heck they want with it. It's a hard thing to determine when pretty much every water body connects to each other, either through rivers or in the form of groundwater. And in recent years, the Obama and Trump administrations kind of muddied up what was considered under federal jurisdiction and what was not. The EPA was pushed to more clearly define WOTUS after the Sackett v. EPA case made it to the conservative Supreme Court. The case goes all the way back to 2007 and involves an Idaho couple, the Sacketts, who bought land to build a home where there was a wetland. They prepped for the construction, but then were halted by the EPA, who said the wetland was federally protected, so it couldn't be filled in. The agency ordered the couple to bring it back to the way it was before or face fines. Wetlands are actually super important biodiversity-rich ecosystems, and they store a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. Anyways, the couple sued the EPA over this, saying the regulations were too stringent. The case went up to the Supreme Court in 2012 over whether the lawsuit was premature. The Supreme Court said it could proceed, and since then, this case has been a rallying point for property rights advocates. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the case last October, and the case will likely be decided on this 
this year. Because the EPA clarified what is under WOTUS and what is not, some legal experts think that it removed some teeth from this lawsuit. The Sackett's lawyer doesn't think the EPA WOTUS update though will impact the case. And it's hard to know which way the Supreme Court will lean considering that they sided with West Virginia to block the EPA from regulating power plant carbon emissions last year. So how do you think they'll go with this? It'll be a huge impact if they heavily limit the EPA's ability to monitor federal waterways. So yikes. And last week, Twitter blew up with gas stove controversy after a member of the Consumer Public Safety Commission commented on a health study published in December, which suggested that having gas stoves in the house might impact a child's respiratory health as much as secondhand smoke. Published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, the meta-analysis, which is an analysis of many studies on the topic, determined that 12.7% of US-based childhood asthma might be due to exposure to gas stoves. For context, about 40% of American households have a gas stove. Even when these stoves aren't on, they continue to leak gas and other harmful chemicals like nitrous oxides into the air. In response to these findings, the official briefly commented that maybe the commission should consider regulating the product. And a day later, he clarified that the commission was not looking into that now though. And now even the White House has clarified that no one is banning gas stoves. Instead, the Inflation Reduction Act has allocated subsidies for people who would like to switch if they want to. Still, it was enough to send people into a tailspin, with some Republican congressmen going so far as to say the only way their gas stoves could be taken away is over their dead bodies. A bit dramatic, don't you think? Why are we choosing an appliance over our children's health? That's what I want to know, especially one that's more expensive to run. Nowadays, induction stoves, which are different than electric stoves for clarification, even though they are also electric, induction stoves are cheaper, safer, and heat up food faster than gas stoves. Yet the gas industry has been priming the public to fight against phasing out gas appliances for decades by creating catchy slogans like cooking with gas and paying influencers to show themselves cooking with gas. You can watch a whole Climate Town video on that if you want to learn more, but this propaganda has gone on since the 1930s. And they've been so successful that at least 21 states, all Republican led, have preemptively banned cities from being able to ban gas stoves, despite again, induction stoves being cheaper, healthier, and better for the planet. And now Republicans are even trying to introduce legislation that would federally ban the ability to ban gas stoves. Talk about a fossil fuel simp behavior. Housing is responsible for 13% of US emissions, so electrifying homes is a big way to reduce the sector's emissions. Gas stoves becoming a culture war is such a waste of precious time that we don't have. Now, before some cooking with gas enthusiasts start coming in the comments section, let me just say that if I didn't know about all the bad health and environmental aspects of gas, I wouldn't care which way I'm cooking with. Most Americans don't care about what they're cooking with. If you're some fancy chef that can't live without a gas stove, fine. But your cooking preference shouldn't force people to live in a less safe environment. Also, climate change is likely already making your favorite ingredients harder to grow and therefore more expensive to buy. Anything from almonds to wine to corn to chickpeas to cranberries, they're all being impacted by climate change. So cooking with a fossil fuel, which helps warm up the planet, is that really the hill that you wanna die on? <laughs> Just a thought. And that was your climate recap for the day. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becca Sphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. 
Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.